All right, let's take our Bibles. John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Pray for the expectant mothers. We have two that could be expecting this week, so you be in prayer for them. John chapter 7. Look around. If your neighbor doesn't have a Bible, share your Bible with them. John chapter 7. How many glad to be in God's house tonight? Amen? It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Wonderful. John chapter 7. Very familiar passage of Scripture. And we're going to just kind of understand what's going on here. And I pray that... uh, the Lord will help you. Now, it's not my typical alliterative message here. I'm going to kind of teach through this. First two points are just kind of help you understand that what's going on with this. Then we'll see where Jesus is coming from on this. But I hope you don't miss this today. It'll help you. It helped me immensely about three or four months ago as I got into the passage here a little bit. And I just kind of waited. The Lord pressed my heart. This was a Sunday to give the message. So you bear with us tonight if you can. I'll tell you what we'll do tonight. I like to hear God's people read the word. Amen. And let's read out loud together. And uh, it'll, it'll be good for us. John chapter 7, verses 7 to 39, 37 to 39. Let's read together, please. Okay. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spake of the Spirit which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Would you notice some thoughts? I want you to circle tonight. This is kind of a teaching message this evening. The context we're going to look at tonight, I want you to see, I'm going to spend some time on this, is the Feast of the Tabernacles. And this is the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Very significant, so you can understand what's going on with it. It's the last day. The, it was the... It was the it was the day we would say in our terminology when there was a great rush, incredible rejoicing. OK, the Jewish rabbi said that the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, if you've never seen rejoice, you've never seen rejoicing until you've seen rejoicing on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the Jew, in the Hebrew, I've got a, I've got the name in here, in my notes, I'll get to you later. But notice in verse 37, even John, the translators themselves, they understood this, the, the King James translators. And they called it the great day. And that's what they did. The Jews called the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles the great day. In fact, if you look at Haggai, I'll say this a little bit later, Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Haggai speaks to words to start rebuilding, to start the building of the temple. Because if you know your Bible, they'd stop the construction. And it was at that time that Haggai got the word of the Lord on the same week, on the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles to build that. And so this is all going on inside the temple. And so you notice, first of all, the reference to the to the the, la, the last day of the great of, of the feast of the tabernacles. Then it's called the great day. Then I want you to circle the word believe. There's the word believe again. John uses the word believe 85 times. You're going to hear me preach a lot about believing because we need to increase our faith. How many believe that tonight? Amen. And then you'll notice he talks about out of our belly. Now, he's not talking a little belly. He's talking out of your life. OK, he's talking out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us verse 39. Look at verse 39. Verse 39 is the commentary from the Apostle John. The Holy Spirit led him to insert that in there, to saying, this spake he of the Spirit. Now, the, the, the theology of the Holy Spirit was not foreign to the Jews. They knew who the Holy Spirit was. In fact, you go back to your Old Testament, there's a lot about the Holy Spirit. For instance, Isaiah 61. Isaiah said, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, right? Uh, we read about the Spirit that came upon Samson. We read about the Spirit that came upon, upon David. The, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit was not foreign. However, 
the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was not a ministry of the Spirit at that time because Jesus had to send to heaven before that would happen. So as we look at this tonight, we're going to see some interesting thoughts this evening about living water. And I just want to give you a thought tonight about why I believe in the Holy Spirit. Amen. Not what the charismatics believe. Yes, what I believe about the Holy Spirit. Holy different message. You're thinking, well, you're going to give us a lesson on the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you a lesson you haven't heard before about the Holy Spirit. Not new theology, but biblical theology. And I want us tonight just to get our hearts wrapped around this passage of Scripture. And I want you to see some things. And we try to do the best we could. I wish I had more visuals I could show you tonight. But I think you'll get it. And uh, we'll show you some graphics and things that will help that tonight. But we want you just to grasp where Jesus was coming from. Because it will help you understand all of chapter 7 and all of chapter 8 of John today as we look at that. Now, Father, tonight we're just thankful this evening for the baptisms this morning. And we thank you for the families that came and the visitors that came, the gospel that was preached. And, Lord, we thank you today, Lord, just meeting people who, uh, Lord, who came because someone invited them or they found us on the Internet and or something of that nature, Lord. And just every week it amazes me, Lord, just, God, the, the people you bring to your church through one way or the other. Thank you for your people. Yesterday, Lord, we probably had 60, 70, maybe 80 people out sown winning and the gospel seed was sown. And that's just a blessing, Lord. And thank you, Lord, for folks who are now that's been sown that those folks will find their way to church and thank you for streets where the gospel was given and father now tonight this is your people and i pray that you love upon your people tonight love them through your word build them up in the word of your grace lord help me tonight to feed the flock of god which is among us lord i pray this evening we would thirst in our soul we would thirst for what is talked about here we would desire greatly what jesus is referring to here for our christian lives now tonight lord Bless the service that we would take good notes, but more than taking good notes, we let the Holy Spirit speak to our heart. And thank you today that he's our comforter, that he comes alongside of us. He's the paraclete. He's the one who's our teacher. Uh, he's that anointing which we received at the time of our conversion. He is the earnest of our inheritance. Thank you tonight that he's the seal of God upon our lives until the day of redemption. And thank you tonight. He's the blessed, sweet Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead, the one who's co-equal with the Father and co-equal with the Son, the one who's co-eternal with them, the one who's also co-essential. We need the Holy Spirit of God tonight. And Father, our hearts are hungry and crave for you to do something great. And Lord, as this message is to get us ready for our anniversary Sunday. Thank you, God. We're just looking forward in just a few days of celebrating 19 years of being a church. What a wonderful thing. And God, there have been many, many victories, a lot of heartaches in between there, but many, many victories. And we thank you for that today. I thank you tonight, Lord, that your people have come here with a desire to hear from heaven. And God, may they hear from you tonight. And I'll pray that your blessing, your anointing, your power be upon me this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people say, Amen. Let's be seated, please. I want you to notice tonight in our passage of Scripture that two very important doctrines are found in verses 37 to 39. There's the doctrine of faith, and there's the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. As you get into the passage of Scripture, you start realizing tonight that faith and the Holy Spirit are an indispensable duel. They have to work together. Faith and the Holy Spirit are an indispensable duel that have to work together. We're going to look at the importance of faith and the Holy Spirit I'm going to say tonight, because we have many new members this evening here tonight, that the Holy Spirit is greatly misunderstood in the public marketplace. He's greatly misunderstood in most churches regarding his person, the priority of the Holy Spirit, his practice, and his power by many people. People misunderstand how and when the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life. 
People misunderstand the gifts of the Spirit in terms of their relevance and the responsibility we have with those gifts. People misunderstand their relationship to the Holy Spirit, and people misunderstand the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, while those are all important, I don't have time tonight, nor it's my intention, to address these areas of misunderstanding and to correct them. That'll be another time. That'll be somewhere maybe in a Sunday school class or at a fellowship meeting, or maybe at a different service, we will address that. That's not what my, my goal is tonight. Tonight, we want to address the importance of the Spirit's work as revealed by the Lord Jesus Christ in your life and mine. And I remind you tonight about the Holy Spirit. He's, he's, he's your friend that God put into your life. He's that comforter that comes alongside of us there. And we must remind ourselves tonight, that without the Spirit's presence and power in our life, we are useless. We cannot get anything done. Charles Spurgeon said this, Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are ships without the wind, branches without sap, and like coals without fire, we are completely and totally useless. Tonight, we want to explore and see how the, whole, the Lord Jesus Christ elaborated on the great, wonderful ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. Would you indulge me tonight? Because my first two points, I have three points tonight. My first two points tonight, I'm going to just teach you. I want to, I'm going to build this up so you can understand everything in the background that's going on. Because without that background, you will not grasp the importance and magnitude of what this verse says here. I've heard messages preached. In fact, I heard one of our great evangelists of our day preach from this passage with a great message. In fact, if he ever comes back here, I'm probably going to ask him to preach that message. But what he preached does not coincide with what Jesus is teaching here. It was a great application, but it does not coincide with the context, okay? And I want to see the context tonight because if my understanding that you will be greatly much more sensitive to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life and might change your life tonight in terms of things God's going to do. So notice number one this evening. I want you to see number one, the celebration. I want you to notice the instilled celebration. Now notice the occasion. If we go back to chapter 7, verse 1, we're going to look at some scriptures tonight. Chapter 7, verse 1 and 2 tell us this. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Now understand the background of this. Where we are coming out of is after chapter 5, when he, when he healed the crippled man at the pool, at that pool down there, Siloam. And then later on, there would be the feeding of the multitude, and then he would go on the shore of the shores of Galilee. The Bible says Jesus went back into Galilee. He's not in Jerusalem. He's in Galilee. You have to remember that tonight, where we were starting point. Because at that time, the, uh, the Jews already, at that point of his ministry, were out to kill him. They were very angry with him, and they, they, they just, they, they had it with him. Verse 2 tells us the occasion that brings us into our passage. Verse 2 says, now the Jews... Feast of the tabernacle was at hand. Now go with me to Leviticus tonight, Leviticus chapter 23. And I, I'm sorry to tell our translators are going to do this, but they'll, they'll, they'll follow me with this. By the way, thank God for our translators tonight. Amen. And uh, you pray for them. Go with me to Leviticus chapter 23. And I want you to scroll down with me to about 30, verse 34. And I want to talk to you about this matter of the Feast of Tabernacles. So you have kind of a background there. I was not going to read it, but I think it's essential as we read this tonight. Okay. Remember, this is the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, as you get to Leviticus 23, uh, 23, verse 34, remember this. The Feast of the Tabernacles entailed eight total days. Okay. Eight total days. Okay. Jesus, as we get in our passage, is on the seventh day. The first days we'll read in, in Leviticus 23. The first day and the eighth day are days of rest, a holy convocation. When there was a holy convocation, that meant all the assembly had to come together and they would rest. They were to do no servile work, as the Bible says. They were not to do any servant work. All the men would come back to uh, would come back to Jerusalem for this feast, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But notice verse 23 for a minute, then I'll talk about these feasts here. 
In verse 34, it says this, speak unto the, uh, verse 33, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, speak unto the children of Israel, saying, the 15th day of the seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. Now, just so you don't, you don't miss this, remember this, that the seventh month in the Jewish calendar would be equivalent to our month of September. And it happens to be the 15th day. Praise God, they did it on my birthday, amen? On the seventh day uh, on, on, of, their, of our, our September there. So it was on the 15th day of the seventh month, they would commence the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, you count down the days from there, it would go from our September 15th, oh... Said what, September 23rd, something like that, okay? So it would go for eight days there, okay? Now they would do it for seven days, but the eighth day would be a day of rest. Now notice verse 30, verse 35. On the first day should be a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. Seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. On the eighth day shall be a holy convocation unto you. You shall offer an offering, um, uh, an offer, an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly and you shall do no servile work therein. And uh, we'll talk more about that. Now, when when Jesus appears at the Feast of the Tabernacles, as we get into here, we're told that his ministry is down in Galilee. When he's down in Galilee, his brethren come up to him. Again, there's this, there's this hostility towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, his brethren came to him. He says, well, you know, why are you in private? And, you know, you should go make yourself public. You know, people that want to be famous should make themselves public. And that wasn't what Jesus was trying to do is become famous. His goal was to get people to trust in him, right? To get them to believe on him. And so he said, well, you go ahead. You go to the feast and you go ahead to Jerusalem and be there. And he kind of gave them this idea that he wasn't going to show up. But he wanted to be there privately. He would go in there secretly. He would go into in there incognito, if I could say that. Amen. And so Jesus would go there. And as we read through John chapter 7... Jesus comes halfway through the feast and halfway through the feast, he just kind of stands out. And again, he was more known in Galilee than he was in Jerusalem. So there was, there was a large, large group of people in Jerusalem that did not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's there and he gets in the middle of the feast. He starts preaching and teaching there. OK, now I want you to understand some things about these feasts. OK, now the feast of the tabernacles was three, one of three main feasts in which the Jews were commanded to go to Jerusalem. Okay, you want to write that down if you're not familiar with that. There was one of three main feasts that the Jews were commanded to come to Jerusalem to attend. Now, the first one was the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Passover. We know about that. And that one celebrated their deliverance from Egyptian bondage. And it was a picture of Christ's death for every sinner. So it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Every Jew was commanded to go to Jerusalem to attend that feast. Every male, listen, every male had to attend these three feasts. They were commanded to go back there, okay? Number two, the second feast was the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost occurred how many days after, after Passover? 50, 50 days after, okay? That, that gives some significance as we read about the crucifixion going to the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But the Feast of Pentecost, also known in the Bible as the Feast of Weeks, celebrated the annual wheat harvest and is a picture of the Holy Spirit's descent and indwelling of the believers. So, Feast of Unleavened Bread is feast number one. The Feast of Pentecost of heart or weeks is feast number two. And that was celebrated to one celebrated the 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 uh, was was a picture of the death of Christ for every sinner. The second one would be the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now we get to the Feast of Tabernacles. 
The Feast of Tabernacles was the third of the great feasts that all the Jews had to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. And again, all the males had to be there. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrating God's goodness and provision in the life of the Jews. Just like the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and so forth there, it was a celebration of God's deliverance from Egyptian bondage. And uh, it gave them, and how God gave them blessings in that promised land. It was a reminder to them of that. And so, the Jews, if you read your Bible, you find this over there in Nehemiah chapter 8. The Jews were commanded to, during that week, where they were to make, take, cut down some palm leaves, and they would make these booths. And these booths, B-O-O-T-H apostrophe S, these booths that they, they lived in, they would basically dwell in that to remind them of their wanderers, their wilderness wanderings, how they dwelt in tents. And so sometimes they would refer to it as the Feast of Booths. And so, we find that the Jews during that week, they would, they would find a place back in those days where they would make these booze to celebrate and commemorate God's goodness and delivering them and His goodness at the time of, of, of harvesting because September would be the time of harvesting and all the goodness of God in the lives of these people there. Um, it was instituted by God through Moses that we saw from Leviticus. Uh, it was celebrated for eight days, as I said earlier. And uh, for seven days, the Jews would make an offering made by fire. In addition to that, when they did the Feast of Tabernacles, this is so good, this is so wonderful. Uh, they took Psalms 118 and they read Psalms 118 every day. And the priests would go down to the pool Siloam and would, uh, would do this, this offering where they would offer every day. And I'll say more about this in a minute, a drink offering and a water offering. And they would draw the water from the pool of Siloam and pour that out as a, as an offering unto the Lord. And, and we'll see some about that in just a minute there. But they did this all the time and the priest would lead, lead a, congr- a, a delegation of people from the pool of Siloam back to this place where the, where the feast would be celebrated inside the temple. And they'd have a delegation of people that would be chanting Psalms 118. Now, if you're not familiar with Psalms 118, that needs to be on your radar list of Psalms that you read. Every single person in church that will tell you this, every single person in church who goes through a major trial, some difficulty, I always bring them back to Psalms 118. Psalms 118 says, tells us things like, it is better to put your trust in God, the Lord, than put your trust in man. It's better to put your trust in the Lord than put your trust in princes and a lot of things like that. And we'll read some things about that a little bit later when we get to Psalms 118. But there was such a, excitement that went on with the Feast of the Tabernacles as they read this Psalms 118 and so forth there. Now, when we read about the Feast of Tabernacles, it's interesting as we go through our Bible that the Feast of Tabernacles has a very prominent place in Jewish history and in the Bible record. We have its first mention in Leviticus 23 while they're in the wilderness. And remember, Leviticus was given, all the things given in Leviticus was before the actual, got, got before what we read in Numbers 13 last week. It's before they would be chastened to stay 40 years in the wilderness. Remember, there was like this several months time in there that first year. God was getting them ready to enter the promised land. And part of the preparation found in the book of Leviticus was, you know, the feasts and so forth like that. They had to be prepared for. They had to get the Ten Commandments. They had to establish a tabernacle and all the instructions about that and instructions about the high priests and things of that nature there. So this has all happened before the wilderness journeys. But during the wilderness journeys, they had that tabernacle that was constructed that God gave them instruction on. And they would practice the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles there. Now, some things we want to understand tonight is that the, the next time we read about the Feast of Tabernacles is First Kings chapter 8. In 1 Kings chapter 8, that is when the dedication of the temple, the very first temple that was built, happened to occur at the Feast of Tabernacles. That's pretty significant, okay? The very first time we have mentioned this dedication is at the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. You find that in the opening verses of 1 Kings chapter 8. The second time we read about it is in Nehemiah chapter 8, when there was the reading of the Word of God by Ezra. And we find the people of God making these booze and standing there, and they had the Feast of the Tabernacles at that time. A third time we read about 
this, and I wish I had time to get into this tonight, is in Haggai chapter 2, when the people had reached a stagnant point in their, in their ministry, they were supposed to be building the temple, and then they got some pushback, and only the foundation had been laid, as we read in Ezra. And God had raised up the prophet Haggai in the second year of King Darius, and it happened to be in the second year, listen, on the seventh Jewish month, which would be our month of September, Haggai got up by the instruction of the Lord and commanded them, hey, he said, Zerubbabel and Joshua high priest, Get your hands ready. God strengthened their hands. They went up and started constructing and building the temple. And he talked about how the, the nations that despised him. And he talked about the desire of nations being Jesus Christ at that time there. And then another time we read about it. The last time we read about it in the Old Testament is Zechariah chapter 14. Which I've got another message that's coming up. That I'll tell you about that in a minute here. But Zechariah chapter 14. We find that when Jesus comes. Zechariah 14 deals all about the second coming of Christ. It has nothing to do with the rapture. It deals with the second coming of Christ when Jesus comes with the armies of heaven. We're part of that army. Amen. And we come and he establishes his kingdom on earth. And when that happens, we have this, the Lord speaking about that great temple that will be part of the millennium and how rivers of living water flow out of that temple into the cities and the streets. And it has some great symbolic meaning for us, which another message I'll get into. But anyway, we find that the Feast of Tabernacles and the image of living water is very, very vividly in the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the teachings here of scriptures. Now, when we look at this, we, we, we believe this tonight. I believe tonight that tonight, and I believe many other Bible students believe the same. We believe that because the Feast of Tabernacles speaks about Jesus' second coming, we believe it also speaks about his first coming. Because when we consider Lord Jesus Christ's birth, he did not, he was not born on December 25th. Uh, that was a date that was chosen by pagans. In fact, you ought to get the, the book by Heslop, uh, entitled the, 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 uh, the, what is it about Babylon here? The, uh, the, the two Babylon, see, I'm blanking there. The two Babylon. It's a great book. Every Baptist should read just as part of your Baptist history to remind you that, that the celebration of Christmas did not originate with, with Christians. In fact, it was a pagan holiday that was started and involved the worship of the sun, which takes you back to Genesis chapter 10, as you read about Nimrod, and Nimrod married a woman. And they had a son and there was the, the, the worship of the son happened then and, and solstice and all those kind of things like that. But and then the, then the Catholic Church in the fourth century kind of took it to a different level. And uh, Baptist Christians back in those days, Baptist believers did not celebrate Christmas at that time. But over time, we came to give recognition to the fact that, well, wait a minute, you know, uh, it's talking about birth. We can still we can still exalt the deity of Jesus Christ. And and, and I'm not against Baptist brethren that don't want to celebrate Christmas. But here's the problem. If you if you if you if you're afraid to touch the matter of the birth of Christ, you're not going to preach about about his deity. And that's one of my concerns is about that, that I'm not going to let the pagans and the world seize upon that because without the birth of Christ, you can't have the death of Christ. Amen. Without the birth of Christ, you can't have a sinless Christ. And so, and, and, you, and you, as we've seen, you, you know, you, you cannot, you cannot ignore the, the deity and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's an integral doctrine of scripture there. So, but, but Jesus was not born December 25th. We believe as we look at the scriptures, that most likely Jesus may have been born at the time of the feast of the tabernacles because shepherds would not have been in the hills there during, during Christmas. It would have been too cold for them to watch your flocks at night. But we believe that it most likely could have been in September. Now, why would we say that? Why would we believe that? Well, number one, look at John 1.14. In John 1.14, the Bible tells us this. And the word was made flesh. And notice this phrase there, dwelt among us. Underline that. The word for dwelt among us is where we get our word tabernacle. He tabernacled, or it has the idea of a tent. He tabernacled among us. We coincide that later on in the book of Revelation. And Revelation 21 verse 3 speaks about the tabernacle of God is with men. 
And the word for tabernacle speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we believe that as we look at that, most likely Jesus came in that time. And quite honestly, I believe that when you when you look at Scripture and coincide it, the Feast of the Tabernacles talks about the two advents of our Lord Jesus Christ. His first advent when he came to die for our sins and his second advent, which is later in the future, when he comes to establish his kingdom on earth. It speaks so eloquently about that about that matter there. So number one tonight, we see that the Feast of the Tabernacles is the occasion for John chapter seven. We see that the Feast of the Tabernacles was a very important feast in Jewish tradition. And we must remind ourselves that as we get to John chapter 7, the most important verses we'll look at are verses 37 to 38. We see the celebration. Now notice number two tonight. We see the celebration. Notice number two, I want you to see the symbols. I want you to see two illustrious symbols that are brought out in this feast of the tabernacle so we can understand that, okay? Now, preceding the feast of the tabernacle, as I said, was the healing of the crippled, impotent man there at the Pool of Siloam in John chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, okay? That's fresh in the minds of Jesus and the people. And the people were angry with Jesus. They, he did that on the Sabbath day. They could care less that a crippled man was healed. They, were, they, were, they felt violated, if I can say that. And basically, they were but just a bunch of judgmental hypocrites who basically cared less about the needs of a human being and were more concerned about their traditions. Let me tell you tonight, tradition never prevails over truth. Truth always prevails over tradition, okay? We get to place tradition, we elevate tradition over things. That's why you get into some ethnic churches there and they start, they elevate these traditions, all these things like that, where they're basically saying they're kowtowing to tradition. The Christian life never kowtows to tradition. The Bible says, send forth thy truth and thy light. We have to understand sometimes the truth hurts. And sometimes we have to understand the truth will offend, but we must stand for the truth. We can still be Christ-like and we can still be merciful and godly in our ways and loving in a way, but we must stand for truth and not for tradition first. And even Paul talks about that over in, Philipp- in, in Colossians chapter 2 there. So with that as a background, notice, go back to chapter 7 of John with me tonight. In John chapter 7 verse 1, we, we, we read this, it says, After these things... Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Now understand that the mood, the atmosphere, the, the spirit of the Jews at this time. And Jesus was no near, nowhere near the completion of his three-year ministry. Number one, Jesus was despised. In fact, look at John chapter 7. Notice what it tells us here. Um, it says here that they wanted to kill him. And it even tells us something that's very heartbreaking. His brethren came to him. And they, it says in verse 5, For neither did his brethren believe in him as well. He was despised. He was doubted. That's why in John, John makes great emphasis 85 times about believing because there's great doubtfulness about the person of Jesus Christ. By the way, we can be doubtful of Jesus too if we're not careful. By the way, look at John chapter 6, verse 66. John chapter 6, verse 66, leading to John chapter 7. He's not only despised, not only doubted, but some departed. Some left him. Look what it says here uh, in John six sixty six. It says, uh, let's, let me find here. John chapter 6, let's see here. Uh, it says, and from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And Jesus turned to the twelve. He said, will you also go away? I mean, that's the moon and sentiment at that moment of time. I mean, basically, people were drawing their lines and some decided we're not going to follow. Hey, you know, as a pastor, I love people. OK, by the way, I can't imagine a man being a pastor, not loving people. I love people. That doesn't mean people love me. OK. 
And, you know, as a pastor, you know, I, I want everybody to be part of our church. I think we have a great church. I said, I think we have a great church. In fact, I believe we have a great church. Okay. I believe a friendly church. I believe we have a lively church. I believe we have, we have a church that has fun. We have a church that gets serious and church and, you know, blends together and does things. And that's a wonderful thing. But, you know, I, I want everybody to be part of it, but not everybody feels the same way. I have people that come from different Christian persuasions that don't like our, our, our position on things. And they, they make no bones to tell me when I shake hands in the back there. They come up and give me a piece of their mind. And I tell you, you know what? You can have your mind back. I don't want your piece of mind, okay? I'm losing enough of mine. I don't need yours. Amen? Okay? And I think they do that because I, they, they listen to me for about 45 minutes and I've given a lot of God's mind on it, okay? And, uh, you know, just what it is. They just want to tell me about this. Well, I don't believe that. I said, that's fine, but this is what the Bible says. Amen? You know, don't feel offended by that great piece of they which love thy law. Nothing shall offend them. Amen. And you can't be insecure about everybody. You're, you're, you're listen, the ministry, you're not in a popularity contest. Ministry is not about who loves you and likes you. Just as long as God loves you and your family loves you and your dog loves you. That's all that matters. Amen. How many believe that tonight? Amen. Okay. And your grandchildren love you. Amen. So the sentiment there. People didn't want it. Jesus knew that he had to take a different approach. And you read this and we read here that he gets into the he rides in Jerusalem halfway through the feast. And we read that in verse 14. Now about the midst of the feast, probably right halfway mark. And you'll hear me say this over and over as we get talk about these symbols. The feast of the tabernacles was a time of great euphoria. I mean, it was excitement time. I mean, it, it was it was greater than the Warriors winning the championship. It really was. It really was, okay? I, I mean, they didn't have the graffiti and all that nonsense, amen? They didn't have any of that, but they had Jesus. And it was an exciting time, okay? I mean, when they had the Feast of Tabernacles, they put how we do church to shame. Hey, you know, some of us need to be a little Baptist costal, Amen? You get a little excited here. Lady, lady told me today at lunch, she says, I'm amazed at your energy. I said, ma'am, I'm amazed at my energy too, amen? Because when I get home tonight, I ask my wife, when I get home tonight, this is my eighth message this week. And my mind feels like a sponge right now. So if I say something correct, or brother Erin, brother AJ, if I speak in tongues, please forgive me, amen? You know, okay? Okay? And... Uh, so understand tonight, I want you to see two symbols. The rabbis call the seventh day, look back at verse 37, the seventh day, Hoshana Rabbah. Hoshana Rabbah. The great day. Th- that's what the translators saw. That's what the translators saw there, okay? They just couldn't go back and give us all the descriptions in between there because they're telling you, you should have read your Bible getting into that, amen? You should know your New Old Testament going into that. You should know your Hebrew, you know, your Hebrew traditions, all that that's going on there, okay? Now, the two symbols we want to see. Symbol number one is the symbol of light. In the temple. This is so great. In the temple. In the temple there were four gigantic candelabras. I was at, if you go to UCSF Med Center, and the one at Divisadero, they got, they've got three campuses, one on Mission Bay, they got Divisadero, and they got the one on Parnassus on top of the hill. 
Uh, the one in Divisadero, sometimes when I take my wife there for an appointment, uh, every now and then I'll, I'll go downstairs to the cafeteria because they have peach coffee there. And I like peach coffee a little bit stronger than, than, than Starbucks, okay? And so I just kind of just, I'm not loyal to Starbucks, not loyal to peach, I'm loyal to Jesus, amen? And I just go down there, get my peach, and, <laughs> and, I, and I get, now I'm loyal to Costa Rican coffee, that's good stuff there, amen? But, uh, but I go there and get my peach, and as you go down the staircase, you ever go there, there's this, can, this Jewish candelabra. And I always stop there and take a picture. In fact, I got I forgot to send Brother Vaughn for the graphics tonight. It's a great, it's a great image here. And I think about that. And I think about uh, over there in, in Zechariah chapter 4 and so forth there. But in, the, but in the temple there, they had, back in the time, Herod's temple, they had four gigantic candelabras. Four branches on each of them. These candelabras were 75 feet tall in height. What, what's this ceiling here, Brother Denny? Is this 35 feet? Well, how big is it? 35 feet? Can you imagine 75 feet? And these huge bowls. I mean, huge bowls at the top of them. They were by, they filled these bowls up with water. And of course, the bowls could flow into the, the candelabras. But what they did was into the, into the, they would flow into the, into the, into the candles there. But they had these four great, these four great candelabras. And during this time of the festival at night, uh, they would light these things up. They would set the, the bowls on fire there. Now, how many of you ever gone down to Disneyland during Christmas time and seen just go there for the fireworks? That's pretty awesome, right? Okay. And, and a lot of people go there for no other reason just to, and by the way, if you go to Disneyland to stand in line, there's something wrong with you. Okay. Amen. Now, if you go and see the fireworks, that's okay. I just, I'm just, I'm a little bit past that, that, that point in life there. I've raised my kids. I don't think I need to do that anymore. That's not my calling anymore. Amen. But, but people go there to see the fireworks. And the big thing about the Jews, to understand what's going on. These candelabras, they have this huge oil, amount of oil on the bowls. They set it aflame. It's lighting up the place. And you remember where Jesus talked about a city on a hill? That's what he's talking about. Because when that, when those candelabras were lit up, the whole, the whole hillside was lit up. I mean, it was lit up. I mean, it, it just, it lit the whole sky up. It was, it was amazing. It was awesome. And they would do that as part of the celebration of the Feast of the Tabernacles. If you were very far away, you'd look up and say, wow, look at that celebration. Look at the great light that's there. It's lit up the whole sky. It's lit up the whole area there. And, uh, the whole idea of the symbol there was a light. And light represents rejoicing. And light, light does away with darkness. And, and we know those things there. And, but light, Jesus was pointing to something else because as you connect chapter 7 to chapter 8, Jesus used the symbol of the lighting of the candelabras and the lighting up of the great city and the temple there as it lit up the whole city. He was pointing to something bigger. He was pointing to himself in John chapter 8 verse 12 that I am the light of the world. He was talking about he would light up every man's life and wherever there's darkness, that listen, when you get the light out, the light gets rid of the darkness. It dispels the darkness. And when he spoke, John chapter 8, verse 12, you have to remember it follows after the, this matter of this, the, the Feast of the Tabernacles. And he's kind of preparing them about this matter of just lighting things up and freshening the minds of people. And John chapter 8 was the lighting up of the city. I mean, that's, that's been embedded in their minds and their thoughts about the lighting up of the greatness of the city. It's just lit up there. You know, sometimes I'll... I'll at nighttime, we'll come back. We'll be on the campus a little bit late there, and all the lights get turned off. And it gets, and by the way, how many understand? It gets pretty dark back here at night. Amen, brother AJ. It gets pretty dark back here at night. Amen. And uh, sometimes someone will forget something. We'll come back, and we got to turn on the lights. And man, I am thankful it lights everything up. Okay, it's very lit. But listen, how this room gets lit up, how streets get lit up, compared nothing to the city of Jerusalem when the temple lit up. It lit up the whole place. I mean, it was just, it was, a, it, it drew people to it. It just, everyone came to it, and Christ was talking. 
talking about the symbol of the light. Now, please understand that in Isaiah chapter nine, verses one and two, God promised that a great light would shine out of Galilee. Listen to Isaiah chapter nine, because if you're familiar with chapter nine, that also announces the incarnation, the coming of our Lord his first time. In Isaiah chapter nine, verses one and two, listen to what the prophet Isaiah was was led of the Lord to write. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as, as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterwards did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. Listen to verse 2. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Who's that? Christ. Jesus. So the image there, you can imagine this idea of the great light is, is now coming back in people's mind because they're supposed to know the book of Isaiah. They're supposed to know what's going on here. And, and so the idea that we were once in darkness and the people who've been in darkness have seen a great light. And uh, the lighting of the candelabras at the Feast of Tabernacles. Man, God is so good to us. He's delivered us from bondage. And he's delivered us out of darkness for 430 years and from paganism. And he's brought us into the light of his will. And God takes us into a land of promise. And we, we now are in our place of promise. And we have our cities. And we have our inheritance. And we get to worship God. And, and we're not... We're, and God, God has his protection around us. And the eternal God is our refuge. And and underneath are the everlasting arms, the Bible says there. And they're excited about that. And so he says here in chapter 9, verse 2, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them has the light shine. And so beginning on that very first day of the, of the Feast of the Tabernacles, remember, it was eight days. On the very first day, those candelabras, men would painstakingly make their way to the tops of those candelabras and they would fill them with oil. And at the right time, as evening approached, they would set those oil, those, those, those canisters, those, those great bowls on fire and it would light up. And as they lit up, people would go, whoa, look at that light. Listen, they didn't have, they didn't have, they didn't have utility companies and they didn't have electricity there. And listen, no matter how big the torch is, everybody in town extinguished their torch because they knew their light did not compare to the light that was shining right there in that moment in that city. It was a wonderful thing and it started to, it was the, it was the starting point for a time of seven straight days of celebration and they would rejoice and every night they would set that on flame and that place would go aflame and it would light up everything there. Imagine that 75 feet tall in the sky, these lights would be, 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 be would be, uh, would just be lighting up things. In addition to that, the Leviticus musicians would play their harps and their lyres and their cymbals and trumpets and would make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Listen, it was a time of great celebration. The light came on and listen, as the light came on, those candelabras were lit up continuously at the same time and would, would just shine all night long and burn all light not, night long. The musicians would play and such wonderful music and the Jews would be in a festive spirit and a time of celebration, a time of rejoicing and they would think, man, we've got it so good and God is so good to us. God is good to us all the time and all the time God is good. I mean, they would be excited about God's goodness in their life during that time and the light always reminded them of how back in the Old Testament, when the very first time the tabernacle was made, and multiple times in Solomon's tabernacle, how the Shekinah glory came down on the temple. Remember that? And the Shekinah glory came down, and it lit up the whole temple. And they said, God's glory is there. And it was a reminder to them of God's glory in days gone by, how God's glory lit their things up. And I remind you today, God still wants to light up every life right now. He wants His glory to be known in your life and mine. Listen, we are the sons of God without rebuke. We're to hold forth the word of life as shining lights in this world for Christ. And Jesus standing there, watch what's going on. Reminded them, the candelabras are nice, but the light of the world is here. That's what He's saying. The candelabras are nice. 
But the light of the world is here. A perpetual light. A powerful light. A luminous light. A burning light. The light of every man's life. That was symbol number one. Notice symbol number two. Symbol number two takes us to verses 37 to 39. Symbol number two is the water. Now, the light was wonderful. Okay? The light was wonderful. But the part of the ceremony every day, especially on the seventh day, the part of the ceremony that was the most celebrative and the most spectacular was the drawing of the water. It was the drawing of the water. This is the background of verse 37 to 39, okay? And imagine a whole parade of worshipers and musicians and flutists Going with the priest to the pool of Siloam. And the priest, and then these, these don't match up with what, but it was the best we could find around church. The priest would lead a parade of people down to the pool of Siloam. He would take these vessels and dip it inside there, and he would draw up water out of there. As the priest would make his way, he would have two vessels in his hands. He would have this, and another priest would be carrying the wine offering, the grape juice. And the priest, the priest would be making his way back from the pool of Siloam all the way back to, to that place where the drink offering would be poured and the water ceremony would happen. And the drink offering, as you know your Bible, the drink offering is a picture of the pouring out of the life of an individual. It speaks to us about sacrifice, okay? And so that, that would be, so this would be poured out first. The drink offering would be poured out first to represent just the pouring out of our lives, the sacrifice of our lives to the Lord. But the drink offering, but the water offering, the water drawing, as they made their way, the music is playing, the music is great, and the people, the priest is chanting, is, is reciting Psalms 118. Now go with me to Psalms 118 for just a minute. I want you to see a couple of verses there. Psalms 118. And in Psalms 118, it, uh, we see a couple of things here. The whole chapter is good, you read it yourself. But Psalms 118, uh, we find that the psalmist is a time of trial, and he starts off and ends at, at Psalms 118 by saying, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. Let Israel now say that his mercy endureth forever. And then we get over to verse later on. Uh, he says in verse 21, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. And, you know, they got used to just rope memory. And, and they didn't they didn't, weren't thinking as they said that, that that's actually pointing to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the, the chief cornerstone. But they recited it anyway. And imagine with me now, they're carrying this, this, they've drawn the water, they've drawn the drink offering. They're making their way from the Pool of Siloam all the way back to the temple and about where the, where the, where the drink offerings to be poured out. And then the water ceremony, the water be poured out. And they're reciting Psalms 118. And, and Psalms 118, you have to understand, in, for, as far as the Hebrews were, concerned was a very was a very exciting psalm a very encouraging psalm for their christian lives there and they would be saying they would be chanting this and they'd say i will praise thee for thou hast heard me and i become my salvation the stone which the builders refused to become the headstone of the corner and they would say this is the lord's doing it is marvelous in our eyes of course they're looking at the temple 
They're looking at the temple and saying, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Hey, when we open that new building and dedicate, we're going to do the same thing. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in his eyes. And uh, they were saying that. And, of course, not, not thinking this is talking about Jesus. And they said, this is the day. What day? The great day of the Feast of Tabernacles. This is the day which the Lord has made. And we will rejoice and be glad, therefore, in him. I mean, there is this euphoria that's gripping the people and before the water's even been poured. And they're reading Psalms 118. And they're, quiet, quiet, they're quoting it out. And the Jews had memorized it. And they're making their way. And the priest, with tears coming down his eyes, holding that water that's been drawn from the pool of Siloam. And obviously oblivious to the fact, just a few days before that, Jesus had healed a crippled man and brought significance to his ministry and his power. But they were oblivious to all that. And they're just coming and doing their perfunctory performances and doing their thing there. And here they're reading Psalms 118. And notice verse 25. This was so prominent as they quoted Psalms 118. They said, save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now thy prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Who's that talking about? That's talking about Jesus. Blessed be he that come in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. Now that's what they quoted there. And so we, we have this. Now the flute is playing and they're chanting Psalms 119. They go through the water gate into the temple. The trumpet sounds. Oh man, it was the, the trumpet sounded. It was called to assembly. It was time we get together. The trumpet is symbolic of the preaching of God's word. The trumpet sounded and the people were to assemble in the temple area. And he preaches the altar where two silver basins are setting, are waiting. And he pours the wine into one basin representing the sacrifice of Christian's life. And then he would take the water that he's drawn out and he'd pour the water out. And as the water is poured out, it gave great significance because we take for granted water in our area. You see, for you and me, we just press a button and water comes out of a fountain. And we go to our kitchen, we go to the bathroom, we turn on the faucet and water just comes out. It didn't happen that way for the Jews. You understand what I'm saying tonight? They did not have technology. They did not have plumbing systems. They didn't even have septic systems. Uh, they didn't have any of that. And so water was a very very precious commodity for the Jews because water represented what came down from the rains of heaven. And so the collection of water and pouring out of water, water represents life. Water is the essence of life. If you don't have water, you're going to die. If you don't have water, you're going to dehydrate and die. You're going to dry up and die. And so they understood the importance of water there. And as he poured out water, it was symbolic of several things. Number one, whenever you see water and rain, we rain is symbolic of the matter of revival. And we need rain. We need rain in our lives. And we need revival in our lives constantly. Listen, the Christian should always be in a perpetual state of revival. Every devotion should be a state of revival. Every service, every Bible study should be a time of revival. And that water got poured out. The people were thinking, God's been so good to us. We had water again this year for our harvest. We get to eat again. There's no dearth. There's no drought. There's no famine. And just as I quoted earlier, the rabbi said, anyone who has never seen the the drawing of the water and the pouring of the water, they've never seen rejoicing like they did in that day. The people would just be rejoicing. And, you know, you get around Jews, just Orthodox Jews, they have a tendency to be a little bit stoic. A little bit, you know. But, man, they, they came unglued. Water's poured out. Rejoicing and 
happiness. And, and, and just like what Psalms 118 said, because they came unglued and listen, they, they got stirred up inside there and, and they were wonderful. And, you know, the people saw rain because rain and water are a symbol of salvation and the work of God's Holy Spirit. I mean, listen, listen to some things the Bible tells us about this. In Deuteronomy 32, 2, my doctrine shall, shall drop as the rain. My speech shall distill as the dew and as the small rain upon the tender herb as the showers upon the grass. First Kings 1841, Elijah said unto Ahab, get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. Zechariah 1011, ask ye of the Lord rain, if you would, rain in the latter time, the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. Now watch what's going on. The drink offering has been poured out. The water offering has been drawn. The water offering has been poured out. This is the backdrop now as we get to John chapter 7. It's the last great day of the feast. Jesus waited till the priest did all his stuff there. He waited till that happened. The sky is lit up already with the, with the, with the candelabras. And the water has been poured out. And notice chapter 7 verse 37. Jesus, the Bible says, in the last day, the great day of the feast, right at the conclusion of the pouring out of the water, when the people have been rejoicing, and Psalms 118 has been, been recited, and the instrumentists have been playing, and there's great rejoicing, great euphoria, and the people are happy, and they're just rejoicing. Jesus gets up with the bellowing of a great preacher, amen. He gets up and he bellows out. He says, listen, he says in verse 37, he says, if any man thirsts, and by the way, every man thirsts. But sometimes you don't know you're thirsty. When you're thirsty, you need water. When you're not thirsty, you still need water. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Can you see the backdrop to this? The water's been poured. The ceremony's done. It's the last day. There's rejoicing euphoria. And the Son of God, as greatly as He is, the greatest preacher who ever walked, walked the, the, the soil of planet Earth, He gets up and says, If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Those Jews which realized water is a precious commodity. Those Jews who realized the rain from heaven was essential for their crops. Those Jews who realized that now they're putting two and two together. Jesus Christ is the living water. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Everyone gets thirsty. Even if you don't feel thirsty, you still need water. By the way, tonight, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? As the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. You sense the need to drink water for your health and life. Invitation. Come to me and drink. How much did you drink today? How much did you get of Jesus today? John gives his commentary in verse 39. Again, bear in mind, I'm giving you the background tonight. And then we're going to get into our, our third point. It's going to get into our message. I'm almost there. He said in verse 38, he that believeth on me, as the scripture said, now Jeremiah, the celebration has gone on with the bellowing of a preacher's voice right in the midst of this court of the women. Jesus has captured the attention of everyone that's there. And by the way, there were a lot of people that were there. Thousands upon thousands of people that were there. 
If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And he that believeth on me. Out of his belly. Shall flow rivers. of Living water. And Jesus now, as he says that, their minds are spinning. Who is this? Wait a minute. Let's replay that. What did he say? What do you mean, drink of you? Who are you? What's this water you can give? They have the same questions of curiosity the woman at the well had. But she had a face-to-face personal interview, and she recognized her thirst and spiritual need for the Lord. But these people who despised him, these people who departed from him, these people who doubted him, they're just kind of their curiosities peaked at that moment. They're wondering, what is this all about there? And John adds a commentary in verse 39. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe in him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because the Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus, in two verses... Explain the wonderful, blessed ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of every believer. Just as rain was necessary to fall upon the crops, to soften the soil, make it pliable so that the roots can go deeper, and saturate the soil so the crops could grow, in the same way the Holy Spirit falls upon those who have identified with Jesus Christ in His death and His resurrection. The Spirit refreshes us and causes us to grow, grow in grace and truth. It's a Spirit that Allows us to experience Emmanuel, God, with us. We see the celebration. We see two symbols. The symbol of light. I'm the light of the world. The symbol of water. I'm the living water. Would you notice as we close tonight? Would you notice the statements? Jesus takes this as an occasion to drive home to you and me. We're almost done. Two Imperative statements. In fact, you might put this in your notes that I said tonight, two indispensable doctrines. Two indispensable doctrines. Doctrine number one is the doctrine of faith. He that believeth on me. Before you get to verse 37, there are not a whole lot of people that believed in him. Even his own family doubted him. He that believeth on me. Hey, you know what? Step out today. Believe on Jesus. Step out today and believe in his word. He that believeth on me. He's talking about the doctrine of faith. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for your sins. If you don't believe on him, you can't get to heaven. John 3.18, he continues on the same thought because he was talking to Nicodemus that night. And Nicodemus had to unclutter all the junk in his mind. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In John chapter 5, after Jesus has healed this man at the pool of Siloam, he brings about this matter of faith and believing on Christ again and talks about the future judgment. And as he talks about future judgment, he gets to verse 24 and he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life because he has... uh, and it shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. 
That if thou should confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy heart that God is raised from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For the mouth man believeth unto salvation, and with the heart man believeth unto confession is made unto, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, note, write this down tonight for, okay, about faith, the doctrine of faith, okay? Number one, consider what faith will do for you. You need faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You need faith. I'm talking about biblical faith. What will faith do with you? Listen, with faith, you can be saved. With faith, you will please God. With faith, you're on praying ground. This kind cometh not forth by prayer and by fasting. He said, and they talk about Luke, Mark eleven twenty four about the importance of faith and our praying. Hebrews eleven six talks about the importance of faith and praying. With faith, you've overcome the world. We saw that this morning. That's what faith will do for you. But secondly, consider what faith will do through you. We know what faith can do for you, but notice what faith will do through you. Through faith, you can do, subdue kingdoms or governments. I thought that was pretty awesome. You can subdue governments through faith. They subdued governments. You know why we're not winning the battle against paganism? No faith. We need the voters, but we need faith. Through faith, you can pass through the Red Sea. Through faith, you can forsake Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, seeing him who's invisible. Through faith, you can work righteousness. Through faith, you can utilize the promises. Through faith, you can shut the mouths of lions. Through faith, you can quench the violence of fire, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Through faith, you can escape the edge of the sword. Through faith, your weakness can be made strong. Through faith, you can wax valiant and fight. Through faith, you can turn to flight the armies of the aliens, as the Bible says. Through faith, you can say, we are well able. Hey, tonight, how's your faith? What's faith doing through you? What's faith doing for you? You're not saved tonight. You need faith to be saved tonight. You must believe on the name of the Son of God in order to be saved. Are you walking by faith or are you walking by sight? Do you believe or are you a skeptical doubter? Can you say without reservation, I believe? Doctrine number one is faith. Doctrine number two is the Holy Spirit. I said earlier, faith and the Holy Spirit are inseparable in the work. The greater your faith and obedience, you might want to write this down tonight, especially the men here tonight. The greater your faith and obedience, the greater the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The greater your faith and obedience, the greater the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Far too much of our preaching separates obedience and faith. They go together. You study Hebrews 11, they go together. You study the Bible, they go together. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Noah, being warned of things that have not seen as yet, moved with fear. What is that? He obeyed. About The Bible says about Moses, he obeyed. Where faith, faith and the Holy Spirit are in separate words. I said, the greater your faith and obedience, the greater the work of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, where there's little or no faith, there's little or zero power of the Holy Spirit. There's a correlation. No faith, no Holy Spirit. By the way, where there's great faith, there's great endeavors. Age doesn't get in the way. I like what it says about, about Caleb. We'll talk more about Caleb. 
I want that mountain. 85 years of age. I want that mountain. He says, listen, I'm still strong as I was at 40. I want that mountain. Because I've kept myself fit. I've done 50 push-ups a day to keep myself fit, amen? I pop in my vitamins every day. He says, listen, I'm getting enough sun that I get my vitamin D, amen? He says, I'm, I'm going on knee bands and I'm doing some, I'm lifting the boulders so I keep my, my bones strong. He says, man, I'm ready. I want that mountain. You got to keep yourself fit to exercise faith. Great men of faith are always great men filled with the Holy Spirit. Faith and the Holy Spirit are separate in the work. Notice number two. In verse 38, he says, He that believeth on me, as the scripture said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Do you know when you read verse 38, he has the idea of the mountains with snow caps, like Yosemite. And if you go there in May, provided we have enough snow this year, he met, okay? But if you went this past year, and you went to the Merced River. What was the Merced River like? It was flowing. My kids were on a, they were younger and uh, they went on a field trip there and they went around the time of Mace. I don't know if they remember this. And, and I remember going with each of them on the trip to Yosemite there when they were in junior high, high school, whatever it was. And they always walked, told us, we're going to take you to the Merced River, but be very careful your footing because the water's moving fast. You fall in there. Bye bye. We'll see you at the bottom of the hill there. And I looked at that river as it flowed and it was flowing. And my image in my mind right now is rivers of living water. And the idea there, the mountain caps of Lebanon, there is the water as the snow would be melting. It would mingle itself coming down into the Jordan River and rivers like that. And he's talking about torrential rivers. He's talking about rivers that are flowing. Look at verse 38 again. He's not talking about rivers that are stagnant and still. He's not talking about rivers that are slow moving. He's not talking about that. Listen, he's talking about the Lord never intended that the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it would be stagnant, dormant, or non-existent in lives. Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, what does that mean, Pastor Fong? What does it mean out of my life? Out of his belly shall flow living waters. Write this down. Number one, there's the quickening of the Holy Spirit. Quickening means to make a lie. Listen to what he says in John chapter 6, verse 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. Stop trying to do God's work in the flesh. It's the spirit that quickeneth. The words that are speaking in their spirit in their life. Listen, the spirit makes alive. Listen, there is no regeneration. There is no saving without the Holy Spirit. You can't save no one and I can't save no one. The Holy Spirit saves them. Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, is not good works. But according to his mercy, saved by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit of God. There is no regeneration without the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you what, tonight, Brother Irwin has a heart for revival, and I've got a heart for revival. Let me tell you tonight, there is no revival without the Holy Spirit. Well, we're going to bring Tom Farrell in without the Holy Spirit. Tom Farrell is nothing. And I'll say that in a disparaging way. He knows what I mean. We're going to bring Dr. Wayne Van Gelden, one of the most spirit-filled men of our generation. On April, you'll be here for those revival. But revival doesn't come through Wayne Van Gelden. Revival comes through the Holy Spirit of God. Acts 2.17, It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. By the way, children can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. 
Your young man shall see vision. Your old man shall dream dreams. How could you not read the book of Acts and not be stirred about revival? There's a quickening of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, would you notice our verse again? Verse 38. There's the quantity of the Holy Spirit. Out of his belly shall flow. Notice the word. It's plural. Rivers. Rivers of living water. Not a river. Rivers of living water. Man, when you're so filled up with the Holy Spirit, you're just, you're, you're listen, you're leaking. Amen. You're leaking. It has no meaning being a holy Christian. Amen. It's coming out. It's coming out. Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. God desires that our lives be a reservoir, a river, abundantly flowing with the Holy Spirit. Before I say more, can I ask you this question? What's flowing out of our lives tonight? What's flowing out of your lives tonight? What's coming out of your life? Is it the Holy Spirit? If you take the word holy out, what kind of spirit? Just come out of your life tonight. You don't need an MRI or CT scan. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Something comes out of every life. The question is, is it rivers of living water? Some men in Chicago were getting ready to have a conference. Dwight L. Moody was invited to come to that conference. Some of those professional theologians got together in the corner. They said, they said, what's he speaking about? He said, the Holy Spirit. One, one old guy got us. Who does Moody think he is anyway? Does he think he has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? And one godly old preacher said, no, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on him. Can I tell you what the rivers of living water, a sample of that demonstration? By the way, I'm, I'm preaching this. I hope you're getting thirsty right now. I hope you're getting thirsty right now. Number one, the rivers of living water represent the fruit of the Spirit. I'd like you to turn to Galatians 5 with me tonight. I'm not going to read it to you. I want you to read it with me. <clears throat> Verses 22 to 23. Don't get nervous. We're almost done, okay? Of course, I always say we're almost done, right? You there? Let's read it together. Let's start. But the fruit. There's two things. Did you notice faith is in there? Now, can I ask this a question? Is that fruit of the spirit flowing out of our lives? 
How's our temperance? Our self-control? Our spirit control, really? How about our meekness? How about the goodness? How about gentleness? How about long-suffering? You don't need a definition. You know what this means. Amen? You know what this means. How's your peace? I've got peace like a river. I've got peace like... Do you? Do you? How's your joy? In Ephesians 5, 9, it says, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. You show me goodness. You show me righteousness. And you show me truth and you'll find the fruit of the Spirit. Secondly, rivers of living water refers to a second product. Not just the fruit of the Spirit, but souls being saved. Souls being saved. Acts 8, 29, Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. What happened to the man he got near to? He got saved. Acts eleven twenty four. Barnabas is down at the city of Antioch. He's sent there by the church of Jerusalem. They sent an encouraging pastor there, to encouraging man to pastor that church. And the Bible describes, uh, uh, describes Barnabas this way, where he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added to him. Acts 16, we read through that, and the Spirit worked through Paul at Philippi. Listen, we have the, the, the rivers of living water is the fruit of the Spirit. The rivers of living water are souls being saved. But notice, so write this down here, Jude verse 20. The rivers of living water refer to a third product. That's effectual praying. Now hang tight because I'm going to, the Lord's been working my heart. I actually put a devotion that's going to come out this week on 1 John 5 verses 14 to 15 on confident praying and how to pray in the will of God. And I don't have time to develop that, but that's a whole message in the ensuing weeks I might get into tonight to help you to understand how do you pray according to the will of God? What is God's will? A lot of times we say, well, God, if it be your will, do you understand your influence on the will of God? You must understand the principles of prayer. And this is one of them, Jude verse 20. He says here, effectual prayer. But ye, beloved, booting up yourselves upon... <coughs> Notice, your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Do you see that? Faith and the Holy Spirit go together. Praying in the Holy Ghost. Go back to the archives. I had a devotion I put there several months ago about praying in the Holy Ghost. Rivers of living water. There's the quickening of the Spirit. There's the quantity of the Spirit. But as we close tonight, I want you to think of one last thing. Look at the passage tonight in John chapter 7. There's the quickening of the Spirit. There's the quantity of the Spirit. But there's also the quenching of the Spirit. It's in this passage. Quench means to put out the fire. To nullify. To extinguish. To pour dirt on. Now, what was the moon and temperament on verse 37 to 39, the last day of of the temple feast? Euphoria and rejoicing and happiness. And the greatest preacher that ever walked on the soil of planet earth gets up and bellows out. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me out of him, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And Jesus pronounces that. And listen, that whole sentiment there, as he said that everything came to a standstill. We don't have time to read this, but you'll notice in verses 40 to chapter 8, verse 11. All the instruction that Jesus gave in two verses. 
about rivers of living water. And the Holy Spirit was immediately quenched right then and there. The first group that quenched the Spirit were those ignorant of the Scriptures. We find that in the preceding verses. You'll notice here, go back in chapter 7. Notice verse 15. Verse 14. Chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, now, about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? They were ignorant of the Scriptures, but they accused Jesus of being ignorant. Listen, he was far from ignorant. Let me tell you tonight, amen? First group were those who were ignorant of the Scriptures. They quenched the Spirit. The second group that, that, that quenched the Spirit was everybody from verses 40 down to chapter 8, verse 11. The second group that quenched the Spirit were the men who occupied places of influence. Teachers. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing we shall receive the greater condemnation. Before you get anxious about being a teacher, you better remember you're under great condemnation if you mess up. You try to stand at the gate like Absalom, try to steal the hearts of people. You get up there and try to teach a different doctrine. Listen, you, you'll stand in great condemnation before God. The officers, now this going to be the chief priests and the Pharisees. These men of influence said, who does he think he is? Listen to some things I'm going to tell you about the quenching of the spirit. We're almost done. The spirit is quenched when instead of praying without ceasing, we argue and debate about processes and procedures. Didn't hear an amen on that. The spirit is quenched instead of praying without ceasing, we argue and debate and waste time about processes and procedures. Now, processes and procedures have their place, but when we spend one hour of time about process and procedures and we're not praying, listen, something's wrong with that equation. The Spirit is quenched when instead of being obedient to the preaching of God's Word, prophecy is denied, despised. Despise not prophecies. The Spirit is quenched and instead of souls being saved, we do little to win souls to Christ. The Spirit is quenched when instead of faith, there's criticism and doubtfulness. We see that right there. The Spirit is quenched when instead of mercy and a Christ-like spirit, there's fault-finding, judgmentalness, and the people of influence are ready to throw rocks. And that's what they're doing right there. I mean, right at the end of the Feast of this tabernacle, Jesus is there, and the Pharisees, they're trying to, they're trying to entrap Jesus. I hate people who try to entrap people in things. I don't hate the people, I just hate that deed. And here they come, they, they say, well, we have this woman that was taking adultery. First of all, what are you doing there? How did you know she was doing that? Perverts? And what are you going to do, Jesus? And all of them had rocks in their hands because they're ready for him. They thought, well, we got him now. He's going to tell us, well, the, you know what the law says. We've got to cast rocks. And even if he doesn't do that, we're going to cast rocks. Listen, too many of us walk around with rocks in our hands looking at somebody we could chuck it at. Drop your rocks, amen? Take your rock and throw it down. Get rid of your rock. Oops, did I break that? Tell Mrs. Martinez, I'm sorry. I'll quench her spirit. She might quench mine. What did Jesus do? This is what he did. Read Jeremiah 17. Their sins will I write in the sand. Some Jewish, some Jewish commentators believe he wrote the names of all those men down. Don't ignore the writing in the sand. 
By the way, don't ignore the writing on the stucco too, amen? He's writing in the sand. He gets up, and only Jesus could do this. He's so calm. He's just so calm. And he's so meek, he says, okay, guys. He that's without sin among you, let him be the first to cast a stone. Oh, he had to say that. My name is in the sand. He had to say, guess what? From the eldest to the youngest, what did they do? They dropped the rocks right there. And this woman who was fearful that she was going to be stoned, he looked at her and says, woman, we're your accusers. And what he was saying there is, lady, I've forgiven you already. He's going to sin no more. He said, don't go back to that lifestyle. And by the way, I don't believe she went back to that lifestyle. The Spirit's quenched. We walk around with rocks in our hands. But I, I tell you a good, good thought tonight. If you've got a rock in your hand, come, the, come down to the altar and drop the rock there. Drop your rock and roll your way out. Amen? Just go on. Drop the rock. I'm looking for somebody to point out. I'm looking at Brother Gerald right now. I'm going to chuck my rock at Brother Gerald. No, don't chuck your rock at Brother Gerald. I'll chuck the rock at Brother Gerald. You just drop your rock at the altar, amen? <laughs> you didn't do anything wrong, Brother Gerald. Spirit is quenched when everybody in attendance forgets that the most important person among us is Jesus. Hey, it wasn't the candelabras. It wasn't the drink offering. It wasn't the ceremony of pouring out the water. No. The most important person there that day was Jesus Christ. The most important person here tonight is Jesus Christ. By the way, he's not the guest. He's the owner of the church. He's the worship leader. These contemporary knuckleheads, worship leaders. My goodness. Look at Jesus. Well, we're going to get up and just sit on our stool and we're just going to have a good time with the people. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Let me close. I need to let you go tonight. This past Tuesday, I don't know about you. I think it was this Tuesday. Yeah, it was this Tuesday. And I read the news about the mudslides down in Montecito there. Did you see the news? Look, look at this. This came off of CNN. And I'm not a CNN person, but that was a pretty good graphic. Go, go type in CNN.com and look at this picture there. That was on the day of the mudslides in the rivers. As of today, 20 people are confirmed dead. Now, I'm not getting into politics as to why someone did get it, make a mandatory evacuation. That's not the point. But I do want to say this. Those mudslides that came down, they came down in rivers. In fact, I'm going to read you the article. I'm going to just read you. It's kind of interesting. It just happens to be in the article. They said this. If I can get this back on here. The, the article, they said, rescuers have been searching frantically for the missing since rivers of mud and boulders plowed through the neighborhoods in and near Montecito. Wow. That's kind of interesting. 
And listen, those people who 20 lives were needlessly lost, that took them by surprise. They said the rivers came, the rivers of mud and filthy water came down between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. People were sleeping. They said people from the ages of 3 to 89 have been uncovered. They're still looking for more people to see what's going on there. Hey, listen, those rivers came down and just took them by surprise. And they came down quickly, came down powerfully. And if you saw the images of people rescued out of the mud, what an awful thing. They're spitting out mud and mud in their lungs. But listen tonight, I wonder this evening, how many of our lives are like rivers of mud coming down where we're coming down as mudslide instead of rivers of living water coming out of our life. So we're going to our 21st anniversary. The words of our Lord Jesus Christ are just as important today as they were on that last day of the great feast of the tabernacles. He that believeth on me, faith, Show out of his belly rivers of living water flow and the Holy Spirit. How much of the Holy Spirit is in your life? How much faith do you have? What is faith doing through you? Are rivers of living water coming out? May God help us tonight to examine our lives. Because as Jesus spoke this, I believe this was embedded in the hearts and the minds of those people there and those who did believe on him. There was a difference in their life. And if you believe on him, there should be a difference in your life as well. Father, tonight as we consider the thought here in John chapter 7. It's all about you. And tonight I ask during the invitation time. We drop the rocks that are in our hands. And we evaluate what's, what kind of rivers are coming out of our life. What kind of faith is being demonstrated. Lord, tonight, thank you for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Who comes inside of us at the moment of conversion. He's the earnest of our inheritance. He's the seal of our redemption. He's our comforter. But tonight, Lord, we respect and revere the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And tonight, as we evaluate our faith, God, we realize tonight Jesus said, He that believeth on me, that begins with salvation. He said, Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Lord, I pray for church tonight. I pray to be a preacher tonight, a church tonight, for that evidence of the Holy Spirit is in our lives tonight. God sent us an old-fashioned revival tonight, the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit of the living God falls fresh on us tonight. Lord, all of us need to be thirsty for Him. All of us need to be thirsty for more of You. And we need to come and drink. Begin our faces before God and plead. For the power of the Holy Spirit for our lives. Reminded tonight, Jesus said in Luke eleven thirteen, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more should he give the Holy Ghost to them that ask of him? Lord, tonight increase our thirst, our hunger, our desire for you. As we give the invitation tonight, maybe someone here tonight needs the Holy Spirit to save them, to do the work of regeneration, of creating the new birth in their hearts. I pray for souls to be saved tonight. I pray for Christians who have a great desire for Christ to start the new year off great and saying, I believe in the ministry 
of the Holy Spirit. Father, we give the invitation. Would you help us to do right? I ask you to stand tonight. If you need to come this evening, come join us at the old-fashioned altar. How much of the Holy Spirit is coming out of us? What's in your life? The fruit of the Spirit. Praying in the Holy Ghost. Souls being saved. Listen, if we're, we're not moved by what that passage of Scripture has to say, something's wrong. We don't have that thirst. God created that thirst and desire in us this evening. God, help us to thirst for the Holy Spirit of God. May we drink deeply of the Lord. Listen, we can't get enough of the Holy Spirit tonight. He that believeth on me out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. The two go together. You are not the judge and I'm not the judge. God is the judge. Let's come tonight. Get, most, get all we can of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, tonight as we assemble around the altar and in the pews and different places, we need a great thirst for the Lord. Jesus said, blessed are they that thirst and hunger after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And God, the image of rivers of living water coming out of us. I pray that it would capture our attention. I pray that, Lord, it would stir us in our sleep. I pray it will stir us in our devotions. I pray, Lord, our imaginations will cannot will just run wild of the thought of a life that's flowing with the Holy Spirit. Rivers of living water. Father, have your way in every one of us that we would be vessels unto honor, sanctified and meet for the Master's use. Thank you tonight that 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And thank you that that treasure is the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Father, we get ourselves out the way and let the Holy Spirit have control. Raise up great soul winners. Help change our praying Help us to bear all the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Let it flow. We pray, let it come out. Let it be exhibited. Help us to leak abundantly out of our lives the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then tonight, Lord, as we go our separate ways, this evening we pray that you would help us to have a victorious week this week. I'm thankful tonight that the Bible says that this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Help us this week to have a victorious week. Prepare our hearts, Lord, for the things that you've prepared for us this week. And, uh, Lord, help us to glorify you and please you and find opportunities to witness and get people to church. And all these things we commit to you tonight. Thank you, Father, this evening for the word of God, which never changes. Dismiss us with your blessing tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.